Turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, please. Romans chapter 15. This morning we are going to look at seven verses, verse 7 through verse 13, out of this wonderful book, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches of Rome. We've been blessed over the last year studying this. This is our 52nd sermon in the book of Romans. And we're getting into this practical section of what it looks like to apply all the theology of Romans to our lives. So if you would, stand with me, Romans chapter 15, and let's look at verse 7 through verse 13. And it says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles! with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In Him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray and ask God for His help as we study this text under the title, Welcome One Another. Welcome One Another. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the Apostle Paul writing this letter to the Romans. We thank You for the Holy Spirit inspiring it, that it is word, a Word for us today. Your living and powerful Word, sharper than any two-edged sword. God, I pray that You would Speak to us now. Use me as your servant. I pray that my words would communicate with clarity your truth, not merely my thoughts and ideas, that you would open our hearts to be recipients of your word, to shape, to be shaped, to be molded after the pattern of Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Keith Hernandez was one of the top baseball players of his day. He batted 300. He had numerous golden gloves. He was an MVP. Yet with all of his accomplishments, he lacked and missed out on something that was very important to him. And that was the acceptance of his father. He told the story of a time when he was talking to his father and he said, Dad, I have a lifetime 300 batting average. Is that not enough for you? What more do you want? And he said that his father looked at him and he said, Son, one day you're going to look back on your career and say, I could have done more. 
I could have done more. You could have done more. You could have done better. Am I not good enough? Is this not enough? I've loved you. I've sought to care for you. No, you could have done better. You know what it is that keeps us divided? It's that kind of thought. They could have done better. You could have done Because we, we could. I could always be a better pastor and you could always be a better church member. I could always be a better friend and you could always be a better friend. And what happens is, is we start looking at the other saying, you know, you could be better. You could have done more. I see your deficiencies. I see your problems. I see your failures. And therefore, that, kinds of, that kind of thinking is what creates division. It's what breaks down relationships. Never being satisfied. Unless we understand that Christ has done what we could never do. Unless we understand the gospel message and how we are not united by flesh and blood, by our accomplishments, by our satisfaction of one another, but we are united by the work of Jesus Christ. And Eric is in Christ. And I am in Christ, and Matt is in Christ, and Audrey is in Christ, and Kwame is in Christ, and Brian is in Christ. We are in Christ. And we begin to see each other the way that God sees them. And what we hear is the voice of the Father who says, well done, my good and faithful servant. You see, there was a Father who said, well done. Who will say, I should say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not because he's looking at the work of your hands, but because he's looking at Christ who accomplished on your behalf and then he has gifted you with all that is Christ. If you're with me this morning, give me an amen, a shout, a hallelujah. So we're in Romans chapter 15, and this is a very practical section of the book. Romans is known to be a doctrinal book. You know, a lot of people think of Romans as the, the, the book of doctrine. It's where we go to, uh, to, to discover and to highlight and to explore the great doctrines of our faith. It's known to be doctrinal. But as Romans goes on and gets toward the end, Romans is very practical. It's as if Paul is saying, here is all the right theology. Now you have to understand that right theology ought to lead to right practice. And I'm one that has said before, and I believe this, that if your, if your theology doesn't lead to right practice, something's wrong with your theology. Right theology should lead us to right living. Because why? Well, the way we live is how we think. Now, it could be that you don't believe your right theology. But if you believe it, and if that's the way you think, it changes our lifestyle. 
It changes actually how we interact with one another. Steve Lawson put it like this. He said, he said Romans 15 and these chapters surrounding Romans 15, is how sound doctrine is lived out. Meaning sound doctrine is not merely to believe, but sound doctrine is to be lived. It has implications. It has application. And so here what we're told in verse 7 is application of sound doctrine. He says, welcome one another. Not just tolerate one another. Not just try to get along with each other, but welcome each other. This is the same word that's used in chapter 14, which means to thoroughly receive one another. To fully accept one another. It doesn't really just mean welcome. It means warmly welcome one another. Like the wholeness of how you can embrace somebody, embrace one another. This phrase is also an imperative in the original language, which means that it's not an option. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's a matter of obedience. Therefore, if we don't welcome one another, then we are out of step with Christ. If we don't welcome one another, then we are in disobedience to God. Who then should we welcome? Who is it? Well, clearly he's talking here to churches. He's talking to the Roman churches. He's addressing Christians. And the one another then is a reference for those that are united in fellowship with these Christians. In other words, who do we welcome? Well, those who are in Christ, those who God has brought to you, A.K.A. look around the room. This is how practical it is. The very people in this room are the ones that we are to welcome. Who do you welcome? Everybody that God brings to you. Now they might not be the kind of person that you thought God would bring to you. I mean, if you look around this room... I know it's awkward, you're all staring at me, nobody's looking to your left or right. If you look around this room, you know, I wouldn't have chose that person. I didn't think that God would be bringing me into an intimate kind of fellowship with this individual. They might not be the kind of people that you would have chose. Yet, God, in His infinite wisdom, and sovereignty since before creation ordained that you would be in fellowship with these people isn't that wild that this church the makeup of this church today is the very makeup that fits Romans 8:28 for your life all things work together for good designed by God this is the makeup designed by God for your good And so we welcome one another, not just in a way to be nice to each other, but in a way to say, God, I see you, I I, I trust you, and I welcome you. And so we welcome the actual people that God has put into our church and into our life. Therefore, 
Church should be the most welcoming place on earth. But if we're not, or if we're not careful, I should say, we could miss it. The human tendency is for us to welcome the people that we like. Even on a Sunday morning, and maybe you're even guilty of this if you're going to be honest, maybe even this morning. There's some people that you came in that you really connect with, others that you find a bit strange, others that you just don't know and it's awkward. The human tendency is to welcome, hey, welcome, it's good to see you. A smile comes on my face all of a sudden. I brighten up when you walk in the room. The people I like. That's human tendency. To receive the relatable. To hang with the harmonious. To commune with those that we have things in common. What's the most common question when invited to a party? Who else is going to be there? I'll make my decision based on your answer to my question. Who else is going to be there? You see, Christians, we have a tendency to follow that same path of the world. To warmly welcome the successful and to ignore the disenfranchised. Or some might flip that around. They've got a heart for the disenfranchised. And they despise the successful. Who's going to be there? Going to go to this church event? I don't know. Who's going to be there? Oh, there we go, Tony. Tony always gives me good, good fuel for my preaching. Jesus is going to be there. Come on, somebody. You know, I've, I've known Christians who have left churches because they had two or three friends leave. And they have left entire communities. And they'll say, well, I just don't, you know, my two or three friends left and I don't have anybody else there. We've got a whole church. We've got everybody that God has put there for you, for this moment of your life. You see, we have a tendency to follow the ways of the world as we think about welcoming one another in the local church. We act no different than the world. And that was the issue that Paul was addressing in Rome. There, in, in this context, this isn't really our issue today, but you would have felt it if you were there in the first century. In this context, you had Jews who became Christians, and you had Gentiles who became Christians, and there was a big disconnect between these two cultures and between these two ethnicities. And they were separating, they were building walls of division over secondary issues such as diet, whether or not we eat meat, vegetables, days, holidays, etc. They're building walls between themselves. And for Paul, as these Roman churches are struggling to understand their unity together, not theologically, but practically, for Paul, this isn't just simply a social concern. But for him, it's a spiritual concern. Meaning, if they all accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and if 
God has accepted them in Christ, and we have one Savior and one church and one baptism and one family and one body, and we ought to look like it, he's saying. It's a big issue that has theological and spiritual consequences on either side of how we flesh this out. And so Paul is saying we ought not to build walls between us. Yet, yet we do. You know, Jews and Gentiles said, hey, you know, let's just build a big wall here and you guys be on that side of the wall and we'll be on this side of the wall. Building walls between ethnicities, between cultural backgrounds, walls between the rich and the poor, walls between uh, black, white, Latino, Asian, walls uh, between those who have degrees and those who don't have degrees, walls between those who have kids and those who don't have kids, walls between married folks and single folks, walls between older folks and younger folks, walls between just personality differences, walls between extroverts and introverts, amen introverts? You like your little wall. <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't make fun of you. Building, I just built a wall, I apologize. But we, built, we have a tendency to build walls. Yet we ought to tear these walls down. At the root of our issue, I believe, is, is, is an issue of joy and peace. Meaning this, angry people are not welcoming people. Unhappy people are not an, an embracing people. Bitter people are not an accepting people. And so what we see in these seven verses is not some kind of like shame-oriented, you know, you haven't done enough, uh, you, you, you haven't been a, a social enough, you haven't been friendly enough, you haven't been... That's not Paul's approach. Paul says, welcome one another, and then immediately he turns from there to Christ. Welcome one another. Let's talk about Jesus. That's Paul's approach. So my summary of these seven verses in one sentence is this. Since peace and joy in our life come through Christ's acceptance of us, I can warmly welcome others. So why welcome each other? He looks to Jesus, and let's look to Jesus this morning. Let me give you three reasons pointing out from the text here. Number one, we welcome one another because welcoming one another reflects Jesus. That's the first reason. Welcoming one another reflects Jesus. Jesus. What we see here in verse 7 and verse 8 is that Jesus welcomes first you. There's two parts here. First, he welcomes you. Secondly, Jesus welcomes them. And so since Jesus welcomes, us welcoming one another reflects who? Come on, help me out. Jesus. He welcomes you. Look at verse 1. As Christ has welcomed you, he says, for the glory of God. Welcome one, one another. How? As Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Check this out. 
Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. Question, are you perfect? Do you have it all together? Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. Meaning, it brings God maximum glory to welcome broken sinners like you and me. Let's just think about this for a second. If we were deserving and if we were, per were perfect, it would still be wonderful to know that God welcomes us, but it would make sense. What brings him maximum glory is that he welcomes sinners through the forgiveness of their sins, through the, the transforma transformation of the Holy Spirit, through the whole gospel message. It brings him glory. As Christ has welcomed you, therefore welcome one another. So, therefore, if welcoming broken human beings brings God maximum glory, then your welcoming of broken human beings brings God maximum glory. If you only welcome those who are perfect and have it all together and who are easy to love, that makes sense to the world. But when you welcome those that are hard to love, when you welcome those that are broken, when you welcome those that are sinners, when you welcome those that, are, that have hurt you, that brings God maximum glory. And the world looks at that and says, that doesn't make any sense. Tell me about this love. One of our church members, having experienced the body of Christ, he had this epiphany and uh, some years ago, and he, he, he was telling me about how it just hit him that we, we know by faith the acceptance of God in the gospel, but we feel that as the body of Christ shows it. Like, as the body of Christ, as His hands and feet you, you're, you're showing love and acceptance and welcoming to the hurting, broken, sinful, uh, hard-to-love individual. That is how they feel the very love of Christ through the body. Also, I'll put it like this. If Christ has welcomed you, you must not deny a warm welcome of others. If you're a sinner, if I'm a sinner, and He's accepted me by His blood, how can I hold back my love and my welcome for another child of God who He has accepted by the blood of Jesus Christ? Let me remind you, church, of the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ. He gave up His glories to come to live a life that you and I should have lived. He died on the cross to die the death that you and I should have died. He rose from the dead so that we might have life. And then He says, all who are weary, come to Me. All who are tired, come to Me. All who are, 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 are unable, come to Me. All who have failed, come to Me to turn from your sins and to trust in Christ. And what we discover is that living, He loved me. Dying, He saved me. 
and buried, he carried my sins far away. And rising, he justified freely forever. And one day he's coming. Oh, glorious day. If you're not a Christian, you wonder, how could I be welcomed by God? This is how. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ and know that your sins have been paid for on the cross. And that in Christ, you are completely forgiven right now as you look to Him him in faith. And that one day, you will be separated from even the presence of sin to live forever with God. Jesus welcomes you. Also, this is my second part of this, this point, Jesus welcomes them. So we welcome one another out of what God has done for me, but we also welcome one another out of what God has done for them. This is where Paul goes next in verses 8 and 9. He shows us that Jesus serves both parties. In this case, again, it was the Jews and the Gentiles. That was the division. Jesus serves the Jews and Jesus serves the Gentiles. What he's saying is, is that Jesus tore down these walls through his own service. Look at verse 8 and 9. For I tell you, for is a grounding word, meaning uh, this is the, the, the purpose, or this is the reason rather, for the welcome of one another. This is why, for I tell you that Christ became a servant. Somebody say servant. He became a servant. That means lowly. I want you to wrap your mind around the fact that Christ became a servant. Those of us that have been Christians for some time and we've read the Bible for some time, we can get used to these ideas and used to these words and the the magnitude of it doesn't slap us across the face like like it once did. Christ became a servant. He took on a lowly position to serve the circumcised. Circumcised is a nickname for the Jews. So he's he's going back to the Old Testament here. And he's saying Christ served Israel to show God's truthfulness. To show that God is a true God. To show that the God of the Old Testament who made these covenants and made these promises is a covenant-keeping and a promise-keeping God. To show that God is reliable. As he goes on in verse 8 and 9, he gives two in order that's. There are two purposes that Christ serves to show God's truthfulness. The first purpose is this, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. He's reminding us of Abraham and that God said to Abraham, through your seed, a Messiah is going to come. I'm going to bless the whole world. God said to David, that there's going to be one king that is to come who's going to sit on on his throne, on the throne of David, and reign for all of eternity. So Christ then is serving, he's saying, Israel to show God's truthfulness that God is a promise-keeping God who keeps His Word to the patriarchs. But secondly, and the second reason is kind of surprising for the Jew. In verse 9, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Not only does God serve Israel, the circumcised, to to show that He's true 
to his people, but he does it also, second purpose, is so that the Gentiles who were outside of Israel, who were not initial recipients of the covenants of God, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Not for his judgments, which they deserved, but for his mercy. Meaning Christ is a servant to a diverse people. He's a servant to both Jew and Gentile. Christ serves across ethnic and cultural lines. What he's saying here is that Christ served the 12 tribes of Israel, but Christ also came as a servant to the barbarian tribes outside of Israel. Christ served the tribe of Benjamin, and Christ also served the Goths and the Visigoths and who's the other one? The Vandals. Christ serves all nations from Africa to Europe to Asia to the Americas. Christ is the servant of all that make up his people. And so therefore, what do we do with these walls? We've got to tear them down. Let there be no wall between Jew and Gentile. Let there be no wall between our tribes. Because walls prohibit fellowship. Uh, you should just show me a picture of their new kitchen renovations. They, they've, they've gone in and uh, are, are tearing up things and putting in a whole new kitchen in their house. And if you've ever been in their house before, you know that the hills, as you walk in toward their kitchen, in their dining room, there's the kitchen right there. They had this big old wall that was between the dining room and the kitchen. A big, thick wall because there was also some stairs going through it. And maybe I'm stretching this analogy too far, too far, but that wall would inhibit fellowship, didn't it? If somebody's in the kitchen, they can't commune with those that are in the dining room. And so Eric came in with his big old foot and knocked down that wall of hostility that stood between the kitchen and the dining room, and now they have an open floor plan. The church is to be an open floor plan. There is not to be any walls metaphorically between us which would keep us from being able to see each other and know each other and love each other. So the first reason then we welcome one another is because it reflects Jesus. The second reason that Paul gives us in these verses, the second reason we welcome one another is because welcoming one another fulfills Scripture. It actually fulfills Scripture in our midst. So Paul here, as he's making his case, he immediately just quotes Scripture. As it is written, he says. And then he gives us four different passages from the Old Testament. The Jews would divide the Old Testament into three parts. The Torah, the law, the writings, things like the Psalms, Proverbs, and then the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc. <clears throat> Excuse me. Paul quotes from each of these three parts of the Old Testament. What he's saying is, is that the whole of God's Word points to the fact that what I'm saying is true. The whole of God, God's Word shows us that God 
had a vision for a global, multicultural kind of people that would together glorify him. And so what he's doing is he's just pulling from all these different parts to show the consistency of God's word. And it's consistent with God's word through now this new revelation with the Apostle Paul in Romans. Let's walk through it. The first one is pulled from Psalm 18, verse 49, and it's in verse 9. He quotes this psalm and he says, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Psalm 18 is a psalm of victory. And Paul says that I'm going to sing among the Gentiles. It would be understandable for Paul to say, I'm going to praise you among the Jews and sing to your name. But Paul says, I'm going to praise you among the, I'm sorry, David, who's uh, initially quoting this, says, I'm going to praise you among the Gentiles. This is after David, in Psalm 18, was delivered from the hands of Saul. And we get this picture where David is saying, I'm so happy in God, and I'm so fulfilled in what God is going to do through this coming victory that in some fashion I'm going to stand on top of a mountain and face all of the nations and sing to the nations. So Gentiles will hear the praises of God. Second, Gentiles will rejoice with the Jews. He quotes Psalm 117 verse 1 in verse 11. I'm sorry, he quotes Deuteronomy Uh, uh, 32, I skipped over one. He quotes Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, in verse 10. This is his second passage. He says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Here, what we see is, is not only will the Gentiles hear the praises with God, but the Gentiles will rejoice with the Jews. That there's coming this day in which the Gentile voices will join with Jewish voices and there will be not two voices, but one rejoicing together. The third passage, Psalm 117 verse 1, is quoted in verse 11. And here we see that Gentiles will praise the Lord. What does he say in verse 11? He says, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples, somebody say peoples, That's plural, not just singular for Israel, but he's saying the nations, all people everywhere, the peoples, let all the peoples extol him. Meaning going back all the way to the Old Testament, he's saying that there's going to be this plural, multi-ethnic, multicultural community of nations and languages and ethnicities and cultures which together praise the Lord. I think it's interesting just to note that this idea is not a New Testament idea. But he's saying this is, a, this is the way God's Word has always been revealing things for us. His fourth passage that he quotes is in verse 12. And here we see that Gentiles will hope in the Lord. He quotes Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. This was written during Israel's rebellion against God. And this is a prophecy that was given through Isaiah, saying that there's going to come a time when God will circumcise hearts and transform people from the inside out, transform Israel from the inside out. And what we see in Isaiah 
is that when that day comes, it's not just going to be Israel that's transformed, but also the Gentiles will be recipients of this kind of transformation. Verse 12, he says, again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. In the context of this passage in Isaiah chapter 11, God's judgment is coming down on the nation of Israel for their rebellion. And in chapter 10, there's this image of God's judgment coming as a woodcutter. And Israel is imaged as a forest. And all of these great families and, and great tribes are these trees. And the forest is going to be laid bare. The forest is going to be chopped down. So you just imagine this woodcutter going through, just chopping all the trees down. And what's left is nothing but stumps. Now this is mind-wrecking for the Jew. Because the Messiah is in some fashion to come through Israel. And if everything is just laid bare to the point of, well, like we can't even recognize this nation anymore. How can the Messiah ever come? Isaiah 11, verse 1, says, from the stump of Jesse. So one stump is called the stump of Jesse. Jesse was who? Jesse was David's father. God made a promise to King David that one is going to come through his line and reign on an everlasting kind of throne. The Messiah. Through on, uh, the, the line of David, from the stump of Jesse, there's going to come a shoot. It's not going to look like much. Just a small little shoot, a sprig, a sprout. And by the time we get to verse 10, what he says is that the root of Jesse will come. From these roots of Jesse's lineage, the promises of God will be fulfilled. And the root is going to come, and he's going to become like this great nation. A great tree, if you would. A great forest that's fruit-bearing. And those who will benefit from it are not only the Jews, but he says even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, which by the way, the Messiah ruling the Gentiles would have been a given, but what, what was not a given is the very next line. In him will the Gentiles hope that they would find not judgment, but that they would find hope and salvation, grace, and mercy. And so what he's saying in these verses is that the Gentiles will hear the praises of God. They will rejoice one day with the Jews. The Gentiles will praise God. They, the Gentiles will hope in God. You see what he's doing? He's going to the Scripture and he's saying that what I'm saying to you is not new, but this is the fulfillment of God's Word. Why do we welcome each other? Well, one, it reflects Jesus. But two, it's because it fulfills Scripture. As we come together and with one voice, we glorify God. The whole Bible points to this. 
this one unified people. And so if we build walls between ourselves and we don't warmly welcome each other, then we are acting as if the Bible isn't true. But when we do, and when people of diverse backgrounds and people who have challenges with each other, when we welcome one another in Christ, we are seeing the fulfillment of Scripture in our midst. Because that's what the people of God do. Third, and I'm done. Third reason we welcome one another. Because welcoming one another displays faith. When we welcome one another, it displays our faith. It's just that simple. We show that we have faith in Jesus Christ. Think of a couple getting married and the the minister pronounces them husband and wife. As they walk out together, side by side, hand in hand, they are displaying faith that what the minister has declared is true. And they are now one. When a church warmly welcomes one another and walks side by side with one another, we are displaying in faith what God has said about us. That we are indeed one. And I see this in verse 13. Verse 13 is just an amazing verse. Paul here shifts a little bit. And he he goes into another prayer break like he so often does. Theologians call this a prayer wish. And it says this, it says, may the God of hope, let's just stop right there, the God of hope. We remember last week, he's the God of endurance. He's the God of encouragement. Now he calls him the God of hope. He is the God of hope, meaning God is the origin and the object of our hope. May the God of hope Verse 13 continues. Fill you with all joy and peace in believing, he says. He qualifies it. He doesn't just say, may he fill you with all joy and peace. But he says, this modifying phrase, may he fill you with all joy and peace in believing. What's he saying here? What he's saying is is that our true joy and deep peace cannot come apart from genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Look, we can get temporal joy and peace from all things in the world. Weed, alcohol, they can give you some temporal joy and temporal peace with each other. People in your life can give you a temporal kind of peace and joy until they're gone. Substances until they wear off. Things until they fall apart. We can't have real joy and deep peace that passes all understanding apart from our faith in Jesus Christ. Meaning it's impossible to have this kind of joy that we need for unity apart from Christ. Therefore, attaining salvation, looking to Christ and delighting in our salvation and looking to Christ and rejoicing in our salvation and hearing His voice over us of acceptance and love and warmth and welcome, that is a source of continual joy for the believer. 
It's a source of continual deep peace for the believer. As we sang this morning, you give me joy down deep in my soul. Down deep in my soul. Down deep in my soul. You give me joy. The full measure of joy. The deepest kind of peace is ours in believing. And here's the purpose of his prayer in verse 13. He says, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, meaning it's not coming from me. This hope is not coming from you. It's not coming from people. It's not coming from anything that we can hope in in this world. It's coming from the Holy Spirit and we might abound in it. Meaning it's like a tidal wave of hope. I just picture this massive wave of hope that I did not expect sweeping me away as I looked to Jesus Christ. Saints, have you ever had your hopes crushed? Have you ever had your hopes dashed on the rocks of hardship? One person put it like this. He said, although nothing hurts more than dashed hopes, it is also true that there is no greater joy in this life than a deep hope fully realized. What he's saying this is our joy comes from our hope. And when we fully realize our hope that we have in this life, through death, into the next life, that nothing can separate us from Jesus Christ, not even death itself, when we fully realize our hope, we have a joy that you can't rob from me. The number one enemy of welcoming each other is a lack of joy and peace. As I said at the beginning, unhappy people are not a welcoming people. And you know, even from the world, you know how joy creates a welcoming environment, even if it's temporal joy. I remember I had uh, this, this friend, uh, my, my friend's brother in college went to a bachelor party. And his brother, we'll call him John. John was uh, not a welcoming individual. Never spoke to him a day in my life, though I'd tried. He was grumpy, he was arrogant, and so we were out one night in Orlando, and after about five beers, he became my best friend. He had five beers, not me. <laughs> he became my best friend. And we were like hanging out, and he was kind and warm and interested in my life. And I'm like, wow, this guy's actually a really good guy but it was just the alcohol. <laughs> because the next morning, he was back to John, right? He was back to his grumpy old self. My point is this, is we know that when we have, even if it's a contrived, you know, substance-driven kind of joy and peace, that it creates a deeper sense of togetherness and welcoming. That part makes sense biblically. The problem is, is we are not to be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because true joy comes only through believing. 
And when we have that kind of joy, church, you see where we're going with this? We're a welcoming church. Meaning a church which has hope is a church which is filled with faith in Jesus Christ. And a church filled with faith in Jesus Christ is a welcoming, a warmly welcoming church. And so then, therefore, what do we do? We look to Christ. That's what Paul's been doing this whole time. The imperative comes, welcome one another. How do we do that? What he's saying is look to Christ. We can't program this. We can't start a fellowship ministry that can contrive this. We can't create a welcoming committee uh, uh, that, that can, that can uh, somehow uh, do this for us. But rather, we must look to Jesus and see that through Him, through the blood, we've got one people of Jesus Christ. And as He fills us with joy in our acceptance, in His welcome of us, we then therefore welcome one another. That's the passage. That's my sermon. That's the lesson for us today. The most common pushback is this. Well, they don't talk to me. So I don't talk to them. Well, they don't welcome me, so I don't welcome them. Well, they don't accept me, so I don't accept them. Answer. Make the first move. Make the first move toward accepting. Make the first move toward welcoming. Make the first move toward loving one another. As I close, let me just one more time remind you of Jesus. As Jesus was being tried as a criminal on earth for the sins that we have done, wrongly accused, locked up and arrested, do you know what Peter was doing? If I can remind you, Peter was denying Jesus. Peter was committing his greatest sin against Christ. In Jesus' greatest hour of need, Peter was filled with fear. And he was asked three times, aren't you with him? Aren't you one of him? One of his disciples? And Peter may have looked at Jesus being drugged or being taken across a room, bloodied. It brought fear into Peter's heart. And in that moment of fear, he denied Jesus Christ. And Jesus died. Now, three days later, when Jesus rose from the dead, he's sitting on the beach there, grilling some fish as the disciples are coming to the shore. Peter doesn't make the first move, does he? The, the text tells us that, uh, alludes to the fact that Peter's kind of in the background. I imagine Peter not even making eye contact with Jesus, avoiding him. You know, for Peter in this moment, the resurrection was not a thing of joy, it was a thing of horror. Perhaps he's come back to haunt me. Perhaps he's come back to deny me. Jesus makes the first move. Think about this. Jesus doesn't wait for Peter to apologize. Jesus doesn't say, you know what, I'm just going to say, like, he's, he's the one that wronged me. I'm not going to even look at him until he comes and owns it and asks for forgiveness. That's not Jesus' response, is it? Jesus makes the first move. 
And Jesus asks him, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter says, you know, Lord, I love you. And Jesus says, okay, then feed my sheep. And with that, they were restored. Why? Because Christ made the first move. Don't you know that Christ made the first move in your own life? John Stott in his Christianity, uh, basic Christianity book, he says that God always is the one, all through the Bible and in your own life, God is the one who makes the first move. Whether it's in creation, whether it's in redemption, or his personal relationship with you, God made the first move. In the beginning, God, before we even existed, God took action. For God so loved the world that He gave. Before we gave to God, He gave to us. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son. Before we looked for God, God sent His Son to us. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He first loved us. Before we loved God, He loved us. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we turned to God, God turned to us. And three days later, Jesus got up from the dead. Before we rose to give Him praise, Christ rose so that we might have life. And so therefore, church, we rise to give Him praise. And we rise to make the first move as we love and accept and welcome each other. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank You that Jesus made the first move toward us, welcomed us, accepted us through His blood. God, we thank You for the gift of Christ and our fellowship that we have with you i pray god that our fellowship would be seen with one another as we warmly embrace those who you have loved who you have died for in the same way that you've welcomed us it's in jesus name we pray amen